Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult, and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. Inclusivity, inequality, these are important, much used words, but how do you generate meaningful action? This episode is with Fatima Khan Shah, West Yorkshire's inclusivity champion. Fatima's role is new, wide-ranging, and sits right at the heart of what both the West Yorkshire Mayor, Tracy Braben, and the West Yorkshire Health and Care Partnership, led by Rob Webster, are trying to achieve. This is certainly no box-ticking role. Something new and exciting is happening. There is a lot to learn from this episode. Fatima is a wonderfully engaging and inspiring interviewee, and we discuss the origins of her role and how it works in practice, including some top advice for balancing the desire for quick reform and the importance of bringing people with you on the journey. There's a lot of advice on how to positively influence people, which involves putting yourself in their shoes and tailoring your pitch, inverted commas. We also get into the nuts and bolts of her inclusivity goals, including the main wider determinants of health and well-being, how you can move the dial on them, and how that plays into improving inclusivity and reducing inequality. We also have an important discussion on the culture wars which are raging at the minute. How should public professionals engage in these debates and how do you tackle difficult issues and call out poor behaviour at the risk of being lazily labelled as woke? It's a fascinating discussion. Let's hear from Fatima. Fatima, it's great to see you. I've been looking forward to this conversation, but before we get into um, I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about who you are. So firstly, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Um, I've had loads of FOMO ever since I heard about it and I've heard a couple. So it's a real bucket list moment to join you. Um, that's really that's nice of you to say a little bit. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're very kind. Let's put it that way. It's you're very, the truth. very kind. It's the truth. And <laughs> um, my name is Fatima Khan Shah. Um, I am 
referred to as a professional positive disruptor in some quarters. But the day job is the West Yorkshire Inclusivity Champion, which is a role that has been created as part of the West Yorkshire Mayor's uh, manifesto pledges, but also a role that's been developed in recognition of the commonality between some of the agendas of addressing inequality in society and addressing health inequalities from a health and care partnership integrated care board perspective um so it's a really exciting and newly developed role which i think is is really exciting to be a part of but i think the most exciting part of it is it's new and it's innovative and there's no one way to do it uh, which yeah. is why the positive disruption is always a, a good acronym or accolade to have with it so the uh the advent of the new health reforms and even the mayoral system is is, is quite new so what did you do? What's your kind of background professionally before you, you landed where you are? I get asked this question a lot because I think people have always thought that I had a kind of plan and I've never had a plan. <laughs> I've always gone to roles which speak to my values and also utilise my skills because there's no point doing a job you love if you're rubbish at it. Yeah. Um, I started working in higher education on equality, diversity and inclusion, because I really felt from a very young age disability to instinctively want to help others. And then uh, my life took a different direction because I developed caring responsibilities um, for a loved one and, and now I'm caring for someone else. And what I discovered was that navigating health and care systems or the public sector in general at the best of times as someone who's educated um, or fairly well read is challenging mm. but if you're somebody who experiences inequality or has specific needs it's that much harder yeah um and that my I- initial interest in, in sort of health and care in the public sector came from a personal need of wanting to understand and control what was going on in my own home family life yeah. but I also discovered then that there were significant gaps in provision that met the needs of people of my heritage or that had um, a very similar caring situation to what I had. So I, so I started to navigate those forums mainly to understand how to get the best care possible. As a consequence of that, I, I got involved with the voluntary community sector in organisations like Healthwatch and, and realised that actually to make the change happen, you also need to engage with the, the strategic influencers as well as the people that are delivering the care at the grassroots. And that's kind of what I did. So, It's been an interesting path going where the energy is and the passion is. And I've ended up sort of in a a role that focuses on all the, like, if you look backwards to where I've ended up now, it's kind of a clear path, but actually there was no path at all. And I think what it really speaks to is the fact that if you give people the lived experience and the passion to make change happen opportunities, they can make positive impacts. But you need to give them the opportunity. Yeah, that's really well explained. I think that opportunity to have a genuinely positive disruption role, which I think when we get into talking a bit more about it, listeners will realise that you really genuinely do have that role. And they are few and far between in the public sector. 
genuinely being able having that freedom to challenge things. So just on your specific role now in West Yorkshire, you're the inclusivity champion for West Yorkshire, and that's across the health and care partnership, but also the MCA as well, the yeah. mayoral combined authority. Um, when I was reflecting on that, I was thinking that 10, maybe even five years ago, a rule with this title might have been regarded as peripheral or even worse, just a box ticking exercise. But from what I know of you and from your introduction there as well, and also from what I know of Rob Webster, this is clearly not the case here. So this rule to me appears to be very much at the heart of what the health and care partnership and the wider Merrill Combined Authority is trying to achieve. So for others listening who are interested in this and want to know how they can emulate it, perhaps, can you describe how that role came about and say a bit more about your specific responsibilities and objectives? And I realise there's a lot in that question. So I was going to say there's, there's a lot in there and I'll, yeah, I'll have to yeah. break it down by going back a few steps. So I think this role is absolutely a testament to the leadership of the, the West Yorkshire Health and Care Partnership and their their aspiration, and it's very much embodied in their values and their mission about the purpose of them being there is to address inequality and variation yeah. in outcomes in society. Um, and it's something that Rob always advocates for, but many leaders in West Yorkshire equally do. I think what's also really interesting is, you know, we've got in West Yorkshire the first metro mayor that is a woman and she's phenomenal. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that because she's just my boss. She's amazing. And the reason um, that I think this role works so well is because the role is not responsible for fixing everything. And I think quite Mm -hmm. often people see the role of it as an inclusivity champion or the role of EDI to come in with a magic wand and fix stuff. That's never going to happen because you can't address generations or centuries of injustice with one person trying to fix everything across the system. It also will take a significant amount of time. I think the reason why this role works really well for me was because my background is all about leading positive change and transformation. And I think the success of it has been recognising that if you treat this like a culture change transformation project, as in you've got a really clear vision of what you're trying to do, that it's proportionate, that it's realistic, it's resourced appropriately, people are signed up to it and they want to do it rather than they're being made to. That's half of the journey. I think there's also something about recognising that the the advent of integrated care boards, of partnerships, um, have come at a time where, you know, the public sector, the government have recognised that it's really important for these organisations to work together. There are mutual areas of interest and actually the collaboration and partnership working can lead to really transformational outcomes. So this role is set up to convene, to facilitate and to influence all people working in the public sector, whether it's in the combined authorities and local government, whether it's in health, to focus their energies and consider the fact that when they're taking decisions on behalf of their population, what lenses are they considering? Mm -hmm. And it's really important to consider inclusion in those decisions because it may not be an obvious correlation but actually, there may be some significant implications as a consequence, and it could be an enabler as well as a barrier. Yeah. I think the other thing that is really, really important is to recognise that, you know, elected leaders uh, in local government and also leaders in health have all tried to advocate for positive change in the equality, diversity and inclusion sector. But I think what's really 
hit home, I think, in the last couple of years has been the impact of COVID. Yeah. And COVID really magnifying the disproportion and injustice in society. So a key part of my role is advocating for injustice and, and really trying to empower others to lead the change. So, you know, early examples of that are the Women of West Yorkshire network that we're trying to set up, um, the Mayor's Assembly, really linking in with the Youth Assembly and the Health and Care Partnership about having representation of our ethnically diverse communities and all the decision-making levels of the West Yorkshire Health and Care Partnership. All these different parts of the jigsaw have been nudged or facilitated by a role like mine, but they're not dependent on a role like mine, which is why the journey and how it works is so important to answer your question. Why has it not happened before? Um, I think because it requires courage. Yeah. And, you know, we know from, I mean, I know from my own experience of working in in different sectors and, and, and different vocations previously, that people are averse to risk. Mm-hmm. So I I think one of the things I've really understood about different agendas, like engaging and involving people from different populations, about advocating for change, about leading transformation and innovation, is that it requires risk and to take risk requires courage. And it can be quite scary, especially if no one's ever done it before. And one of the reasons that I am successful is because people like Rob Webster took a chance on me when Mm -hmm. I was advocating on behalf of carers to have a really radically different way of working yeah. and other leaders like Robin Tuddenham, Tom Reardon and, and sort of uh, Joe Webster and Carol McKenna and all these amazing leaders that work in West Yorkshire and, and local government too, Kirsten England's another one, a chief exec of Bradford, have all realised that actually sometimes it, the message is not as important as the messenger and it's really important to have people that are from diverse backgrounds or have lived experience advocating for the change, but they're not responsible for the corrective action because they experience injustice. And that's what positive allyship can mean. So I think, you know, to answer your question, and there's been a real roundabout because there were so many layers to what you're asking. I do think it is possible to have it in other places, but it requires um, a maturity and a way of working in partnerships to make it a success. And it also requires resources and and an expectation that is realistic, which is this won't fix everything, but it's another part or another cog in the machine of change. So I do I do want to come back to ask you about what might be happening in other places. But before I do, you mentioned the Women of West Yorkshire Network. Did you want to say a little bit? bit more about that oh my god Uh, i mean that'll take the whole podcast just a little bit if there's people (laughs) listening who might be interested in it so i've always said that networks have been instrumental in my success and you know i've met some incredible women on my journey karen there's so many karen jackson's one of them karen coleman's another where you just sort of have a conversation with them and you share experiences and you talk about challenges and you explore together how you're going to make the change happen and uh, Tracy, the mayor of West Yorkshire, had done lots of conversations on work on International Women's Day. And that culminated in the development of a, a, women, a women of the World Barn in Leeds. And it was this fantastic project where women got together and built something that, you know, is a sort of physical entity that shows the power of partnership working and collaboration. And when I first sort of um, started the job, I was really mindful of the fact that I'd done loads of podcasts and conversations and webinars uh, as part of my role of championing equality. 
about the experiences that women have in society and the the complexity that comes with being a woman living with a disability being a muslim having profile having an executive role being a parent and how all those different layers of intersectionality can create more challenges yeah and i wanted it to be um a conversation about the art of the possible but also really benefiting from my learning talking to people that can share golden nuggets that you can choose which bits you take so we had a planning session a couple of weeks ago where we just got a group of willing individuals in a virtual room to go what do you think we should do should we do something together what are your thoughts they were like yeah we could do this and we could do that we could do this and we sort of distilled some of the ideas together into a format of okay this sounds like something we want to do let's have another conversation and and try and make this a reality so i like to think it's the embodiment of co-production because we're not telling people what we think the solution is we're saying there's an idea here what do people want to do about it and we're letting it evolve in an organic way which i think think is very unusual to people that are used to structure because i'm like yeah i I think it sounds brilliant and sounds like the very opposite of the whole hero leadership concept where you have to pretend like you've got all the answers to everything the whole time and women are so much better at that than men generally speaking and as we said why i'm gonna call you out on that are I you know a lot a lot of men that i've worked with that are really comfortable saying i haven't got all the answers um and i my biggest learning in covid was recognizing that hero leadership was not something i embodied I am a rescuer instinctively. I can anticipate problems and my instinct is to fix them. But that can really impact someone's own personal development and their ability to be autonomous. But also that my leadership is different. My style of leadership is I don't have all the problems and that's okay. But what I can do and what I'm good at is getting people together to develop the solution and I can make it happen. That's fair. No, I, I know men like that as well. But I think it's, I mean, I guess when you think of the, stereotypical male leader and some of our political leaders around the world you could put in this bucket they're not a great advert whereas some of the well-known female political leaders around the world come across completely differently and more like that so yes no it's fair it's fair I, I was generalizing but you know I still think at a on a kind of an average level it's probably still true what i've said um i'm only reflecting on my own experience yes yes well these people have also spent time with you so you've got to appreciate that there's probably a little bit of um uh osmosis there as well Uh, i couldn't possibly no no just to just to come back to west yorkshire so the the whole this um focus on inclusivity so when i spoke to rob webster on the podcast it, it well over a year ago now he was talking about some really firm actions in terms of tackling inequality and boosting inclusivity like yeah. prioritizing uh people with disabilities in terms of yeah. treatment and things like that and that so that's a really actionable hard decision which can be taken how much do you think your goals are driven by hard actions and you know actionable decisions and how much of it is just trying to spread the right culture so that people when they're making those micro decisions do the right thing i think there needs to be a balance of both so my mantra has always been a little less conversation a little more action please 
you might know the Elvis song with that one. I think I think I recognise it from somewhere. Yeah. Um, but you know it is, and when you speak to people that experience injustice, whatever their heritage, they're like, I am sick and tired of having this conversation. We know what the problems are. Just get on with it. Yeah. Um, and I am very much a doer and I will do things at pace because I think it develops credibility and it builds trust and hope, which are crucial for this. Yeah. Um, I, I think going back to your point in West Yorkshire, we have always been really clear about the fact that we need to support our rhetoric with action. So the example you alluded to about the learning disabilities, the representation and decision making, the work of the independent review, the health inequalities fellowship, becoming a partnership of sanctuary are all things where we've committed to doing something and we've delivered it in a time uh, fashion because that makes people genuinely believe that change is coming and that impacts culture. I think what I've always advocated for is an approach where you've got small, medium and long term plans because some of the uh, agenda requires relationship building and people genuinely believing that you're committed to this so you do need some quick wins yeah and that's where you cultivate the hope and the momentum and people will want to join what you're trying to do the medium sort of goals are things that will take time because you've got to either plan it through and deliver it in a period of time or it requires some sort of culture change which you and I both know does not happen overnight Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the wicked issues uh, that you and I have both discussed at length take a good while yeah. because you can have some of the best policies and processes in the world, Andrew, but they're only as good as the person who delivers them. And yeah. if they aren't born into it, they're not got the message, they don't really fully believe in it or they don't feel like they've got the capability or we've not developed the skill set, then it ain't going to work. You've given a great description about some of the some of the elements which are really important for making this work. In your opinion, are other areas outside of West, West Yorkshire going in a similar direction? Are people are people asking you for advice on how to try and do what you're doing? Or are they looking at what you're doing and thinking, wow, that just looks like too hard. I'm going to put that in the, in the too hard to tackle pile. So um, no one's ever come to me and said it's too hard. Good. <laughs> not not Good. to have anyway. <laughs> um, what I'm really good at, and it's one of the reasons why I love social media, is pinching with pride. I mean, yeah. you know, every time something comes across my Twitter feed, I'm like, that's a really good concept. I'm going to borrow that. Then I will. I mean, you've got organisations like the Race Health Observatory. You've got the, you know, policy, uh, public policy hub. You've got the stuff that Marmot's been leading on. You've got the stuff yeah. that Greater Manchester have been doing. South Yorkshire have been doing some good stuff. For me, a big part of my job is identifying and showcasing good practice. There's also acknowledging that as somebody who's a leader in West Yorkshire, I can't possibly know what is going on in the grassroots of the communities everywhere. So there's something about the network of networks of amplifying what's happening in the grassroots of communities and how we make that possible, too. Um, There is something about recognising and, you know, and I am always a glass half full positive person that it can be really hard and that a lot of my work requires me to give peer support, you know, and empower others to act. And sometimes that comes with a significant emotional load. So being able to look beyond the boundaries of your region for support and insight is absolutely instrumental. 
Um, there are other places down south like Trimley, like the Race, um, you know, Alliance, etc. Race Health Observatory, NHS Comfort, NHS providers have done some really, really good stuff on inclusion as well. Because like I've said at the beginning, you know, it's not my job to have all the answers. It's my job to sort of facilitate and enable others to start delivering some of this yeah. stuff. Um, and that requires us, again, to be quite humble and to suspend our egos as well, because we shouldn't be the ones that are having the answers to everything. But what we should be is restless to improve and to learn from others. And I think one of the benefits of linking in with colleagues like you as well is to continuously identify good practice that isn't necessarily just in the health and care sector as well. So the private sector does some really good stuff, like, for example, on the carers, uh, working carers stuff. We learned quite a lot from, you know, private providers like energy providers, for example, British Gas were some of the most innovative when it came to supporting individuals. Some of the governmental departments were really yeah. good as well. So it depends really on what element of inequality or inclusion you're focusing on. But you should really broaden your horizons and don't just assume that, our sector has the solutions because it doesn't always get it right. So I do want to ask you about the factors which drive health inequality. But before I do, just quick reflection. You've had your current. I mean, I, I, I know that you've been working towards inclusivity for such a long time, but you've had your current job title only for a couple of months. I think. What have you learned over those couple of months? So I'm in week eight now, I think, of the job. I figured um, that. Yeah, that's the way it works. Biggest lesson, patience. Right. Already? Yeah. Um, right. You know, really, because I'm somebody who wants to fix everything yesterday. Yeah. Um, and you can't always do that because you've got to bring people with you. And in order to do that, you've got to spend time, develop those relationships, really develop that case for change and bring people with you. Um. And, you know, having to start again in a different sector, that's really important to do that. But because I had the established relationships and ways of working in half of the job, I was really keen to move. Yeah. So that was a really important lesson. I mean, a lesson I've been learning for many years, but I definitely was mindful of it in this job. I think the, the second bit of learning that I've got is the power of developing capability in others. So, again, going back to my first point of being a very, very impatient woman, but also a woman that's very at risk of being spread too thin. So yeah. if this is going to be something that we want to use to empower for change, then having those networks uh, embedded within different parts of the combined authority or within the partnership is crucial to making things a success. So, for example, the Root Out Racism movement that we won an award for in the partnership that was a networked project. It had people from the police involved. It had people from health involved. It had people from uh, communications within the partnership involved. And it had lived experience of people at the centre of it. And it really showed the fact that you don't have to be involved in every single bit of the project for a project to be done well. Um, so that, again, was another key piece of learning. I think the third one, and, and it would be remiss of me to not acknowledge it, is um, you know, we are in some of the most difficult and stressful times that I've ever known. I thought COVID was bad, yeah. um, and it probably was in a different way, but we are amidst such significant change. Yeah. And when you're trying to crazy. advocate, oh, sorry, you were saying. That's right, I just said it's crazy. It is a crazy time. so hard. And when you're trying to do any type of transformation, people need to be receptive to the change, and that's really hard at the minute. And then you've got, you know, uh, organisational change, people wanting to access care yesterday, 
budgets that are smaller, all of those elements will impact people's appetite and ability to deliver the change that you want to see. So it's really enabled me to hone the ability to repivot. And I think it's really important when you're doing a job like this to be able to be very self-aware, to reflect and to change tack. Because one size won't fit all. Yes. Just to pick up on one thing you said there, which I think is really important around patience. And it's it's important from just a person's own mental well-being to not expect everyone to necessarily move at your pace. But just just to be clear, because there there will be aspiring leaders listening to this by patience, you don't mean slowing down, pushing less hard. You mean having a tolerance for others to have time to catch up. Is that what do you mean? Yes, beautifully framed, Andrew, better than I could. So I'm really mindful, but I can be a bit marmite. And what I mean by that is when I uh, come into the space in which you're in, whether that's virtual or physical, I am very impactful because I'm high Mm. energy. I've got a lot to say. I'm really passionate and I'm really pacey and I think really fast. Um, And I was in a task and finish group this morning where I knew exactly where I wanted to go, but it was all in my head. And what I've really got to be conscious of now is framing it in a way where people could see where I want to go. So I had a really impactful conversation a couple of weeks in when I was in the mayor's uh, team um, from one of her sort of uh, colleagues about the fact that they could see very clearly that I had a vision in my head of what I wanted to do and a plan of what I wanted to do. But they had no idea what that was. And I was like, you know what, that's a really good point. Like, I I know what I need to do, but unless I articulate it to you, you're not going to be able to see where I'm going. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make when it comes to patience is not everybody learns or operates in the same way, which is why your self-awareness is so important. Some people need time to reflect. Sometimes people need you to slow down. Yeah. Sometimes... um. You won't win them over. There may be something about you that they just don't like. And I used to really think that was me. There was something wrong with me. But actually, it may be just you've caught them at a bad time. There's something else going on at work, something going on at home. It isn't necessarily always about my impact or intent. Um, So I suppose what I'm saying about patience is sometimes it takes people time to see where it is that you want to go. Sometimes you do need to adjust your ability to communicate and to slow down to give people time to catch up. Sometimes that will mean that you need to amend your style of engaging, depending on the audience and who you're speaking to. And sometimes it also means that you need to make a call about how hard you push. Yeah, I think that's really well explained. And also for some of the people, most of the people that you need to influence, they will be dealing with specific organisational pressures and you know demands as well but I, I think you're 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 absolutely right in everything you said and it's important to be aware of all that but you still need to to keep pushing keep the pressure up keep agitating but in a in a kind and understanding way maybe well it's like I mean I, I would never ever call any of the leaders I work with a, a, a partner or in a relationship but I suppose if you were to call it a marriage there's give and take <laughs> in both sides right yeah. So, you know, no one's going to commit unless you're giving them something first. There's also yeah. something about investing time in relationships. If you're asking someone to do yeah. something and they don't know you, they don't know what motivates you, they don't know why you want to do it, they don't trust you, why would they agree to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, there's also something about recognising that 
as much as I see inclusion as a priority, if you are a senior leader that has got a deficit budget, chairs or non-executives or ministers or whatever it is, um, you know, talking to you or wanting assurance yeah. on certain things or targets that you need to meet, while you may be empathetic and supportive to this agenda, it just be maybe something that you can't get to your to-do list. Yeah. So my mantra has always been, I, I never turn up with just a problem. I turn up with a problem and a solution that will yeah. support them to do what they need to do. And really. when I learned that lesson, it was a game changer. Yeah, that is a really important point. So um, that was a great conversation. Thank you very much. But I want to move now to the nuts and bolts of your job. So health inequalities and the wider determinants of health. So in your view, what factors drive health inequality? So the data, rather than my opinion, mm-hmm. tells us that a lot of your health is impacted by the socio-determinants of things like where you live, your education, your experience of society, um, your ability to access green spaces, um, a number of different factors that may not necessarily be resolved by your visit to a health and care professional. So if we want to address those things, it's really important that we work with our partners who are taking the decisions on those particular agendas to be as mindful of those factors as possible. And a a really great example of that is for uh, when I was starting this role and I read the West Yorkshire plan, which if you haven't read it already, is an incredible piece of work or our five year strategy. We refer to constantly the factors that impact people's health and well-being. And it's not just the things that I've just described, but things like, you know, access to culture, creativity Mm -hmm. has a massive impact on people's health and well-being. But it's not something that is often talked about. And I remember when I was a non-executive in clinical commission groups where we had many, many conversations about the joint strategic assessment and areas of inequality that we discovered, say, the prevalence of diabetes or the access of services for people with a disability or the employment rates of people that are living with a disability or um, the ability of people from uh, an older demographic to access certain services. All those different things were within the data. And we'd have lots of conversations about what the data was telling us and what we need to do about it. But then lo and behold, the next year, the same report, same different, worse outcomes. Um, So I think one of the reasons why this role is is quite timely is because COVID has taught us that society is unequal and that we need to take a more finessed approach when it comes to addressing inequality. So you can't look at it through the lens of race. You can't look at it through the lens of disability. You can't look at it through the lens of age, because life's more complicated than that. Even when you talk about deprivation, you can't assume that just because it's disproportionately impacting people from ethnically diverse communities, that all those communities are impacted the same. So I experience injustice, and I might experience more adverse health outcomes but that has nothing to do with my socioeconomic circumstances it's through yeah. other bits um yeah. so we need to be a bit more sophisticated in our thinking and how we use data the benefits of working in this way that i think has been a, a phenomenal step forward i think for west yorkshire and and the mayor's combined authority is really joining up some of those bits so when we are designing and delivering 
future homes, are we considering the impact and need for our green spaces? When we're working with the art sector, and the mayor does an incredible job of advocating for the creative arts to come into West Yorkshire and to really bring some of the wealth and diversity that is in the south to the north, it's really, really important that it's seen as something that is accessible to everyone. And I remember growing up that I didn't think art galleries were somewhere I could go to because the art was of people that weren't my heritage and didn't really speak to me and didn't have anyone that represented me. I remember going to the National Portrait Gallery in London a couple of weeks ago. It's just reopened. And I consciously was really taking note of how many faces were brown Mm -hmm. or diverse. And I could count on one hand. Um, And it wasn't because there was this need to be structurally racist. It was because the portraits of the people that had donated to the gallery were of a certain socioeconomic status from a certain point in time that was, you know, reflected of our colonial heritage. And we need to acknowledge that. And they did. It wasn't that they weren't. They were blind to it. But there's just something about how we continue to have those conversations and use the mediums of art, of storytelling, of history. I mean, Bradford's got this fantastic literature festival that really explores these issues in a really meaningful way. And I suppose what this relationship can do is really come up with some creative and innovative solutions that impact people's health and well-being in a way that isn't always obvious. So my prior role to this was leading on things like long-term conditions and personalisation. And what we discovered was If you're wanting to treat people that are living with diabetes or more likely to have a stroke, you need to have a whole family centric approach and you need to understand that person. What motivates that person? Who's in that kitchen? uh, What access have they got to social contact? And how able are they to physically come to appointments? So another perk of working with the local authority is that they they manage transport. Uh, Trains are when they're in and Trace has done an incredible job advocating for people to have access to trains at you know, a reasonable cost because that impacts people's ability to get a good job, which impacts yeah. their health and well-being. So it, it's all really, really joined up. And I think the, the great thing about personalisation, if I may say so, and why I was so passionate, still am passionate about it, is if you personalise the service to the person, you mitigate any potential barrier of inequality because you understand what it is that they want. You understand how they would access it. Um, and sometimes it may not be something that health provides. It may be something that social care provides or our yeah. fantastic voluntary community social enterprise sector provides. But in the current climate where resources are really tight and people are really struggling, it's more important even now to make the best use of that resource. And that requires us to maybe give stuff away. Um, and that, again, is scary. Talking about the health system giving stuff away, maybe even budget for some things. That's really good to hear. And I'm really pleased to hear you talk so enthusiastically about the role of councils in the voluntary sector. And because when you think about what a council does, it it, it has control over so many of the levers that affect the wider determinants of health than, you know, many more than the health. Than the Absolutely. NHS does. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so people's educational outcomes will yeah. impact the rest of their lives. And we knew when we were leading on the Young Carers Programme, because we have got carers as young as five in West Yorkshire, that their academic attainment is massively impacted by their, you know, caring responsibility. So it's important that the education sector support that. One of the projects that we're supporting uh, the mayor's office with is how we encourage people from non-traditional backgrounds to consider vocations that 
may not seem as attractive as they first thought. Um, you know, things within the NHS, things within the social care sector, but other, um, you know, sectors like engineering and manufacturing for women, for young girls. So there's loads. I mean, the art of the possible is immense with this job yeah, yeah. And, and and working with the combined authority and with leaders within the local authority who are all in their individual places doing amazing things like I've described. But what the the art of this job is, is to be a bridge between those two and go, oh, have you spoken to such and such? So policing and crime is another factor where we're doing lots of work on supporting people with their mental health and well-being, but also providing insight and advice about how we support people with lived experience of domestic violence, uh, honour killings, you know, all those things, because sometimes those individuals may be using health and care sector services but are unaware of the support and advice that's available. And there was an example that I saw in the first week of my job of the Citizens Advice Bureau being present in an acute trust and that mm. advice being available on site. And what wow. a game changer that is, you know, Amazing. and I sort of said to Tracy, why don't we get them into schools as well? Because you get a completely different demographic. Yeah. So the art of the possible is immense. It's just time, energy. Fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit about the so-called culture wars so for some of the leaders listening to this and indeed aspiring leaders this is it's a it's a very political topic but it's also cuts across so much of what a public service leader does and the things which are talked about cut across so much of what a public service leader does so can we please have a discussion about the challenge of tackling difficult issues and calling out poor behavior at the risk of being lazily labelled as woke, inverted commas. Yeah. So what's really interesting in my job is although I work for an elected leader and work with elected leaders, I'm not a political appointee. And I really like that because it enables me to not necessarily engage in rhetoric, but really support people with meaningful action. Um, and there's no agenda. There's no nothing motivating me in regards to ideology or political um, allegiances. I think for me, what is really important is sometimes we get caught up in language and rhetoric and completely forget about the issue at hand. So yes. things like terminology is really emotive to certain individuals and using the right name and referring to the right thing and, and not upsetting people and quite right, too. But equally, What's more important to me is that the work that we do impacts that person. And sometimes the energy about what word we use completely detracts from that really important and impactful issue. In regards to tackling difficult issues, as sort of the chair of the West Yorkshire Strategic Race Equality Network and engaging with groups all the time that experience injustice and inequality, it does feel to them that they feel the agenda is being moved away or less spoken about, and that all the inequality that came to the forefront during COVID has now been forgotten. And my response to that will be, we will never forget the people that died as mm-hmm. a result of our, you know, the inability to address health inequalities or societal inequalities. People have died because of this. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, and our leaders do this incredibly well, is recognizing that when you advocate for inequality or you correct people or you call out stuff it comes with personal and professional risk mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's much easier allies, to say it's much easier to say nothing isn't it it is because you just don't want to upset people and i've had to really steal myself to call it out but the only reason why i feel empowered to call it out is because i know i've got backup yeah 
and I've got allies. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, is really important. What I also do when people start um, challenging. So I was in a, an engagement session where people were challenging my uh, sort of data and sort of saying that, you know, we can't lose sight of other protected characteristics or focusing on one agenda will be to the detriment of the others. Mm. My challenge back will always be, why does it need to be? Yeah. Because people are multifaceted. And when we started this conversation with the with the chat about intersectionality and what it means. So if the tide rises, all the boats go up, right? Mm-hmm. It, it should be to the detriment of others. And there was an incredible woman called Joe Cox who was sadly taken from us too soon. She was my local MP in Batley before Tracy, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, became her successor. And she started her speech with a phrase I always remember in her memory, which is we've got more in common than that that divides us. And what we're moving towards with these so-called, you know, whatever you want to call it, you called it a culture war, woke, whatever it is, snowflake, whatever people refer to. I'm not interested in creating division. I'm more interested in creating collaborations because divided we will be conquered. Right. Mm. And um, history and I love history. and, And I wish we could talk about more the sort of heritage of history and how that's impacted societies. I don't know whether you've read. And um, some of the books that um, Satnam Singer has written on this, which is really insightful about the impact of colonialism and empire on society. It's a fantastic book. Um, Sorry, who, well, who's that again? Satnam Sangera. He's a right. uh, he's a writer, really a journalist, and he wrote a book called Empire Land, uh, which is incredible. He's written quite a few. Oh, I've, I've heard of that. Yeah, I've heard of it. I yeah, it's yeah. really, really good. And, and I suppose what he was sort of saying in this book, and it's so true, um, is that historically people who cause division are doing it with the agenda of us not rising up against them. And we never seem to learn that lesson. So yeah. I always, and you know, I work with lots of staff networks and there's always that concern of um, people not being able to have the conversation. What I try and do in my role is create safe spaces for us to explore the issues. So, so why, where's that come from? And, and why do you perceive that? And what does this terminology actually mean? Um, and again, when I've done facilitated conversations about the role of white privilege, about what white fragility is, about saviorism, about the challenges experienced by people living with a disability, about the experiences of people with a learning disability. It's not about whacking people with a stick. It's about supporting people to think differently. Yeah. And once people start to think differently and they go on their own individual journeys about that agenda, they will wholeheartedly do what it is that they think is right. And that will help you. Whacking them with a stick, which is not how we roll in either organisation, will maybe make people hit the target, but they'll completely miss the point. Yeah. So is is the way you go about your current role, has that been impacted at all by your own experience in terms of how you've been treated? Um, I would say that my instinct to make things better for people has been completely shaped by my own experience of injustice. I also think it is with a real sense of responsibility that I am someone who experiences privilege now. I am someone with influence. I am in a role where I have the authority to take decisions. And that comes Mm. with a significant sense of responsibility, not only to uh, the people of West Yorkshire, but to people of my own heritage. And I try and proactively, where I can, leave the door open. But what I won't do is support tokenism or symbolic, short uh, minded sort of solutions, because what we've got to do on this to do it right 
is demonstrate that the case for change is meaningful and that it will make an impact. I think the other thing I'd say is going back to sort of what is it that makes me operate the way that I do in my experience of injustice. I have tried on my journey of being a leader to be someone I'm not. Yeah. So, you know, being the only Asian woman in the room, being the youngest woman in the room made me uncomfortable. So do you mean that that you've tried to project the kind of behaviours and characteristics you think totally. people expect? Oh my god, yeah. yeah. I've done I've done the yeah. power dress thing, I've done the trying to speak posh, uh I've done the trying to be in all corporate and professional. Um but what I what I did have to develop was sharp elbows. Yeah. And carry my own chair. So even in my job, people will not always give me a seat at the table and I will have to push my way in. And I will bring my fold up chair and go, I'm here, let's have a conversation with a yeah. smile on my face. Because uh, I know that maybe my contributions were not expected or welcome, but I'm there. Um, and th- that's part of the job. But I think going back to the point I was trying to make about the authenticity and the importance of being who you are. I'm sat here right now in Salakamis because that's who I am. It's my mm. heritage. Um, and I'm not going to try and be somebody I'm not. But I'm somebody who's equally comfortable in both dresses uh whether it's western or south asian it's also south asian heritage month which may give away when we're recording this um but i just did a webinar and i thought it was really important for people to see me wearing the clothing of my heritage because i'm proud of it um but yeah i think a number of my experiences on my journey and i've learned some really challenging lessons about the importance of being your true self about not being somebody you're not about uh the challenges and tribulations of being a leader that it isn't always easy that you will make mistakes but the important thing is to learn from them and the importance of self-care and networks you know I've always been an advocate for self-care not being a selfish thing we don't always focus on it as leaders but actually if you don't refill the cup the cup will empty I think this is really important the self-care point and what you were talking about at the start, the Women of West Yorkshire Network, you know, you've got people have got to create space to reflect and think and get support and give support. And I think there's there's not enough of that at the minute. And it's something which is really important. So to finish up, I've got a few quick fire questions here on leadership. So how would you describe your leadership style? And I think people listening will have got a sense of that already. But how would you summarise it? Uh, in one word, I'd say authentic. Yeah. Yeah. What Very you good. see with Fatima is what you get. I'm a Ron Seal girl. Yeah. And your leadership role, like quite a number of leadership roles in public services these days, is is um, is quite wide ranging across the system, both in the, M- in the MCA, but also in the health and care partnership. How do you... Go about, and again, you have said some of this, but I've got the question written down here and I'm going to ask it. How do you get people, how do you influence people and get them to change when they aren't a direct report of yours? So it depends on who it is. Yes. And yeah, very, very good advice for somebody listening. Because uh, you need to know your audience. Uh, for me, uh, I've been told by people I've worked with that I never do the same pitch twice. Okay. So whenever I'm speaking to someone, I'm always tailoring the argument to their specific circumstances and what and their motivations are. Is that something you no, pre-plan? Pre- no, it's, it's just instinctive. instinctive. Yeah. See, so, for a lot of people, they won't have that, but it might. For some people, it might pay. It might pay dividends to 
Do a Always bit of know your audience. Like yeah. even when I'm um, doing an interview, doing an interview panel, uh, meeting somebody for the first time, I will do my homework. I won't just go yeah. in cold. Um, particularly if you want to make a connection with them and they don't know who you are. So, you know, and, and I'll be honest, some people get unsettled about the fact that I've done my homework before I've met them, but it's a compliment, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. making sure I connect with you. The other thing I would say is um, I've done many roles where I have no direct authority to make people do stuff. Yes. And the way in which I influence them to do what I think is the best thing for them to do in their interest to do so is to give them a compelling argument, whether that's a business case or a strategic argument, of why what I'm asking them to do is in their best interest to do so. Yes. So I always link it back to what is it, what is their motivation, what do they need to make happen? So if it was a medical director, you know, supporting their admissions avoidance, uh, infective discharge, addressing the waiting lists, workforce retention. They yeah. tend to be. So, so if the narrative about inclusion supports those metrics or those influences, then they're more likely to listen to me because I'm supporting yeah. what they want me to do as well. So as a final question, and you've given a lot of advice through the stories you've told and how you've explained how you go about your role. But is there anything that you haven't said that would be advice that you would give to somebody working in or around public services who wants to make an impact in the way that, that you have? Oh, God, that's a big question. Um, I wish someone had sat me down 20 years ago and just said, stop trying so hard. <laughs> because you feel, particularly when you've got sort of my heritage or you're somebody that experiences inequality or injustice, that you've got to work twice as hard. Uh, and, and I have worked twice as hard or three times as hard to get to where I have right now. Would you um, be where you are if you hadn't have worked so no. hard? Well, then why why would you want have wanted that advice back then? Because what I mean by stop trying so hard isn't necessarily don't work as hard, but it's the necessity to please others. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Stop trying to please everybody. Yeah, because what I mean by stop trying so hard is you know um, when you're working in a, an area like this. It's really important that you want people to like you or to get on with you. And when it doesn't work that way, it really impacts you and you take it really personally. But your work will speak for itself. And it yeah. is a sad reality that we do have to work two times, three times as hard. But what people used to say to me all the time when the imposter syndrome would manifest, and it does manifest a lot, is your work speaks for itself. You mm. don't need to try so hard. That's what I mean by that phrase. I think the other thing is um, the art of the possible. So I used to really believe that you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And I never, ever thought that I would start, you know, in the grassroots of Sheffield and this really deprived working class community in a family that sort of said, you're not going to achieve anything. You, you know, girls are seen, can't be heard. You're not going to achieve much in life. You're not going to go anywhere. Walking the streets of Kirklees, thinking my career was over, my life was over because of my caring responsibilities to work in the corridors of Westminster and, mm. you know, reporting to the mayor of West Yorkshire. It's, you know, I'm really, really blessed and I'm mindful of that. But I, I just wish that someone had told me before that this would be possible because there were some really dark times. And when you experience that in a yeah. conflict, 
and that imposter syndrome. It's really, you can't, you know, I can't overemphasize how strong it can be and how uh, impactful it can be. Um, but if it wasn't for the amazing people that have surrounded me, that have been my informal mentors, you know, Marie Burnham, Sarah Munro, loads of people that have just passed through my life and given me that kick up the backside and said, no, no, you've got this. Or Jedi warriors like Rob Webster, the amount of times that I've been in a room with Rob going, I can't do this. And he's just flipped it by the time I've left to make me think I can do this. You know, those people really matter. Um, and yeah. they're everywhere. We just don't always see them. Fantastic. Fatima, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. I have to say I really enjoyed that. Fatima is a brilliant person to talk to, great fun, full of fantastic insights. There's there's a lot of what was discussed there that I'm not going to be able to add anything to the amazing way in which Fatima has explained it, particularly around inclusion and equality so I'm going to focus on the things that I do feel qualified to talk a little bit about so the first area I want to talk a little bit about is how you influence people and I thought there was fantastic information and insights in that conversation on this Fatima talked about the importance of patience and we dug into what that meant and that doesn't mean taking it easy and just you know, slowly going about what you're trying to achieve. But it is about really understanding the priorities and pressures that the person you're trying to influence is under and allowing them time to come on the journey with you. And some of the tools and techniques Fatima talked about there, which are broadly applicable for all of us when we're trying to really make a connection with somebody and influence them, is tailoring your pitch was, I think, how she described it. This means not just turning up with a one-size-fits-all list of things that you want to talk about. You've got to do your homework. You've got to understand who you're talking to, what their pressures are, what a win for them would look like. How can you achieve what you're trying to achieve whilst also helping them achieve their goals? This is a really high-level skill, and I thought that part of the conversation was really interesting and lots to learn for everybody there. The second thing I want to talk about are the wider determinants of health and the role that different organizations play in that and different influencers and actors play in that. I seem to talk about this a lot on the podcast and I don't know whether that's just because it's such an important topic or I always find a way to come back to it. But it was really good to hear what Fatima was saying about the importance of councils, the importance of the mayoral combined authority. Even though she does have a historical connection within the NHS and to the uh, health and care partnership there, she clearly understands that the role that she's doing is one that will require all of these actors to work together. And indeed, Fatima made it really clear that most of the levers for the wider determinants of health sit outside the NHS. And I thought that was really good to hear. And I'm hearing that quite a lot now, which does fill me with hope that we might be starting to move towards a system that really appreciates that and is more system focused rather than just about the interests of individual organizations. So that's everything for this episode. As usual, thank you so much for your time and come back and see us again.